Well, good morning. Uh, thank you uh, for the introduction, and let me add my welcome uh, to that of David's. It's good to see everyone here. As he said, we are continuing our series in Romans, so please turn to Romans chapter 1. Uh, if you have a church Bible, it's page 939, 939, Romans chapter 1. As David said, we started our, our series last week. Um, Due to a printing error, we printed twice as many flyers as we expected, so please do take them and use them. Uh, we have hundreds, <laughs> um, which will outline the next uh, eight weeks as we go through the first five and a half chapters of, of Romans. Uh, but we're jumping in where we broke off last week at verse number eight, uh, and this morning we'll be looking through to verse number 17. So Romans chapter one, starting at verse number eight, this is what the word of God says. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Can I start by asking the question, do we have confidence in the gospel. This is a, a rapidly changing society that we live in. We are uh, seeing change at an unprecedented rate. Think back over your own lifetime at how it's changed. Think about your children and your grandchildren. What will life be like for them here? Do we still have confidence in the gospel? I know we've sung, we're not ashamed to own our Lord and to defend his cause. But in such a changing Northern Ireland, does the gospel have a place? Are we confident that it still has a place? Some would say that for the church to survive in a post-Christian society, we we should be looking more at political activism, at social action, at, at community programs to remain relevant. Is that where our focus should be? Or should we continue to hold on to gospel proclamation, sharing the gospel with friends, with family, with co-workers? And if so, how do we remain committed to the gospel? Is it merely an event, a, a gospel meeting that we can bring people to? Or what does it look like to be committed to the gospel in 2020? Well, I think that's what Paul is going to help us These questions answer in this passage. We're going to see that our confidence in the power of God 
in the gospel is going to drive our commitment to it here in Belfast in 2020. You see, the big idea of the passage that we've just read is that, that Paul's confidence in the power of the gospel is driving his commitment to come to Rome. Paul's confidence in the gospel drives his commitment to go to Rome. And so I just want to split this passage into two uh, and look at verse number 8 to verse number 15 and then verse number 16 and 17. So firstly then, Paul is strongly committed to going to Rome, verse 8 to 15. Just as we start, let's quickly recap. Last week we started to, to think about the introduction here of Paul's letter to the Romans. And I sort of summarized it by, here's who I am, here's the message, are you in? And uh, far from being a kind of dry theological textbook or a dissertation, this letter is a call from Paul, God's emissary, to join him on his mission with this proclamation that Jesus is king to all the nations to bring about the obedience of faith. Here's who I am. Here's the message. Are you in? Paul continues his introductory remarks here in a very customary way in verse number 8 where he starts off by telling the Christians in Rome what he has been praying for them. And he's been giving thanks. No doubt this capital city, this metropolis saw a huge influx and outflux of people coming in for commerce or education. And and, and news about the Christians in Rome had, had traveled to Paul and traveled, what he says, across the whole of the empire. And they themselves were the the evidence that the the gospel has taken root and started to have fruit in Rome. And so he gives thanks to God. I just noted in reading it, I couldn't help but mention, it does show, I think, the the larger opportunity that um, there is for city center churches to have an influence outside the city. Whether it's students coming to university or visiting workers coming to stay for a while. There is an opportunity in the city center to have influence and to see fruit in the lives of those that will not stay but will go then and take that elsewhere. But Paul, as he goes on in verses 9 through to 15, he he, he somewhat unusually doesn't go on to tell them what else he's been praying for them, but he actually tells them what he's been praying for himself. And that is that he is longing to come to them. And and he's concerned that they know that, in case they may think that he's neglected them or forgot about them or ignored them. He continually tells them how much he wants to come, how much he wants to come to Rome. And in fact, he uses this picture in verse number 14, I am under obligation. Literally, the picture is, I am a debtor. So, It's basically the same picture as if, imagine David Bingham gives me 500 pounds and tells me to give it to Andy. Well, while that 500 pound was resting in my account, I would be in Andy's debt. I would be a debtor to Andy. I would be under obligation and potentially under investigation, but I would be owing him something because I had been entrusted with something I had to pass on. And that's the same picture that Paul uses here. He says, I am a debtor. I am debtor 
I have this gospel message that's been entrusted to me. And so he says in verse number 15, so I am eager to come, eager to dispense and to give what has been given to me. And what might surprise us is that Paul's eager commitment to come to Rome with the gospel is not first and foremost about evangelism. Notice what he says in verse number 11. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Paul's first objective in his desire to come to Rome is to encourage and build and strengthen the church. And then from that objective, he says in verse number 13, at the end of verse number 13, then I want to come in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among other Gentiles. You see, Paul sees this gospel that he's been given not just as a a debt that he has to dispense to try and get new converts, but his debt is fulfilled by preaching the gospel in and to the church family first, and then from that in and to the surrounding city. First to strengthen them, to give them backbone, and then to reap a harvest, to see fruit that comes from that. And what is evident both here in his introduction and throughout the whole letter is that Paul wants every aspect of these believers' lives to be shaped and empowered by the gospel. And perhaps this point is best put by Martin Luther when he said, the truth of the gospel is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. I repeat, beat it into their heads continually. I trust you'll forgive Luther's coarse language, it's not mine. But getting the gospel right and keeping it central is a completely vital aspect of our Christian life, our Christian community, and our mission. Many of us, myself included, come from a tradition where the gospel, and I do exaggerate to make a point, can be reduced and narrowed down to man's ruin, God's remedy, man's responsibility. And commitment to the gospel is simply just to have a meeting where that is repeated over and over from every and any text of the Bible. But when we talk about the gospel, it is not just what's reduced to the the entry ticket in to get us to heaven or the preface before the story. And then we move on to Bible instruction and the deeper stuff, the do's and the don'ts. What that leads to, unfortunately, is then just legalism and moralizing when it comes to the Christian faith. If we don't love and cherish the gospel, the atoning work of Jesus Christ, then we'll constantly struggle to understand what it is to be a Christian and to act and walk as a Christian. This is why the truth of the gospel and all of its outworkings and implications, as Luther says, needs to be constantly beat into our heads. We're prone to assume it. We're prone to assume it. We're, we're prone to slide into living a life that just assumes that we all get it. But unfortunately, that will lead to 
us ignoring it and a generation that's forgotten it. 150 years of faithful witness to the gospel here at Crescent Church in Belfast does not ensure any future years of faithfulness. And yes, there are many issues that are crying out for our attention and, and, and proper issues that must be addressed and given energy to. But above all, we must never move on from the gospel of Jesus Christ, but always strive to go deeper and deeper into the gospel. And Paul will show as we start to go through the, the next 15 chapters that the centrality of the gospel will shape our pride, our, our humility, our worship, our approach and our understanding of suffering, our, our differences in opinions with one another, how we treat one another, how we serve one another, is all built on the centrality of the gospel message, the gospel of God. So as a church family, we need to have an ever-deepening understanding of an affection for the God of the gospel and the Savior who is at its center. And its significance to every aspect of life. We need it to change in here and in here before we'll have any impact with these or with this. Paul knew that he's, we saw last week, he's desperate to, to take the gospel to, to people who have never heard it before. But first and foremost, effective evangelism isn't events or snazzy branding or organization all of that is important but it first and foremost starts with the gospel in here and in here changing us so that when we say to someone who doesn't yet know of Jesus it's the power of God our lives back it up how we live together how we treat one another may be the most important sermon we ever preach the most important social media post we ever share And so Paul starts with his motivation and his desire to bring the gospel to the church and then to the city. Moving on then, Paul has made it clear that there certainly was no neglect from his end for the the churches in Rome. And despite not being able to get there, he's been continually praying and he certainly felt the responsibility of trying to get there. And there may also have been a a suggestion here that the the Christians thought that Paul was reluctant to come to them. His gospel proclamation had borne great fruit and churches had been planted right across the extremities of the empire. Down maybe in some of the smaller cities. But Rome was different. This was the, the seat of real, true political power. Not the democratically elected officials on the hill but this was this was the empire this was the center of trade and commerce and it was famous for uh, the freedom for sexual expression and desire this was rome the perfect concoction of greek learning and roman power money sex power rome offered it all and what did the gospel have to bring to that culture that city what sort of impact would the news of a a crucified Messiah have in the face of such? Well, Paul makes it clear here in verse number 16 and 17 that it isn't reluctance that's held them back from Rome. In fact, Paul is confident in the power of the gospel 
to make people right with God. Paul is confident in the power of the gospel to make people right with God. It's going to be particularly important as we go through Romans that we pay close attention in the passage to the little linking words, so, for, therefore, but. Often in Romans, Paul is very dense in putting line upon line. And you can see it here. As we've thought, I am a debtor in verse number 14. So I am eager, verse number 15. And he concludes with a third I am statement, which introduces the great theme of this letter, verse number 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul's eagerness to proclaim the gospel in Rome is fueled by his certainty in what the message has to deliver. Paul says there's no reason or that I'm ashamed of this gospel. Why? Because the gospel works. It's the effective means of God to powerfully save. It actually works. It has real, true power to change, to rescue, to save. And Paul, of course, he's battle-tested. He's took this on the road. We, saw, we noted last week, he writes this letter, he's probably about 60 years old, and he spent the last decade in gospel ministry. He has put the good news to the road test. And city after city and province after province in the Roman Empire, he has seen the power of God at work through this message to transform people. Whether it's slave girls or Roman uh, governors or prison guards or entrepreneurs, he's seen hundreds, thousands of people rescued through the message of the gospel. It's been challenged, he's been confronted, questioned, he's been physically smacked around, and yet the undeniable fact remains that the power of God works through this message he's been entrusted with. And what's more, it's for everyone. The power of God for salvation to everyone. If you go through chapter 1, Paul's constantly using the little word all. The gospel he's been given is for all the nations. Verse 8, verse 14, and now again in verse number 16, there isn't an individual that the gospel message comes to that it cannot touch and save. There is no one who's beyond the power of God. It's the great leveler. No one's too good, no one's too bad. All come through faith to everyone who believes. Paul doesn't care if he's in some village outside of Tarsus or whether he's coming to the metropolis of Rome with all of its money, sex, and power. The gospel is greater. The gospel is stronger. And it's God's effective means of saving anyone. It actually works. I don't know everyone's story here this morning, but... No matter what your background is or who you think you are, you're neither too good for the gospel nor too bad for the gospel. As we'll see, we're we're all in need of the power of God. And no matter how many times you've let God down or let yourself down, God's power in this message is sufficient for you 
it actually works. So what then is the, the secret to this power? What, what, what is it in the gospel that makes it so effective? How is it that it actually works to rescue people? Well, Paul immediately gives the answer in verse number 17. It's in the gospel that God offers us the gift of a right standing based on faith. For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. One of the most important verses of the whole of the letter. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. This is one of the deepest terms in the whole of the Bible, the righteousness of God. There are reams and reams of uh, essays and pages written about it. It's used in so many different ways in the Bible, but I, I just want to summarize them. the righteousness of God. It, it could be, and often is, who God is, describing his character, a divine attribute. He is righteous. It also refers to in the Bible how God acts. And in the Old Testament, it became almost synonymous with his salvation, the righteousness of God, his faithfulness, his loyalty, means that he, he stepped in and rescued his people because he was righteous. And thirdly, it's not only who he is, how he acts, but it's also a gift that he gives. God saves, not merely just by forgiving our sins and wiping them away, but by giving us a right standing, a righteousness that is not our own, a righteousness of God, which is a gift. Knowing Paul, he probably had in mind all three different things. In the gospel, it reveals the righteous character of God, the way God righteously acts, and it also offers us the gift of righteousness through faith. It's been supremely seeing God's righteousness in the cross of Jesus Christ. And as that message is told and repeated and proclaimed, so God's righteousness continues to be revealed to all. And through this message, God offers us the gift of righteousness, not based on our own efforts or works, but on the basis of faith. And this is what is fundamentally unique about this message and what fundamentally gives it power. Salvation offers us the gift of a right standing before God by faith. I guess righteousness isn't really a word that we use very often. And, and so maybe some of you are sitting there thinking that just sounds like kind of religious jargon. So let me try and make it more clear with an analogy that would be helpful to think of righteousness as a validating performance record. You know, the sort of thing that we use to open doors. Maybe you're going for a job and you pull together your CV. That's your validating performance record. And you submit the CV and you hope you get the interview and then you get the interview and and you're, you're trying to build this case. Uh, maybe there's an aptitude test and a presentation and all the while you're trying to build what you could call your righteousness. This is why you should accept me. This is why I'm worthy. This is why you need to let me in. Maybe it's trying to get a degree. Pull the, the personal statement together. Get the grades. Put them all together. Send them to the university. This is my righteousness. This is my record. Accept me. Let me in. We all do it. 
When we're trying to get in, we're trying to open doors. And the funny thing is, every single religion everywhere in the world is built just like that. Here's how you can build your validating record. Here's how you can achieve enlightenment or a morality so that you can be let in. Develop this righteousness so that you are worthy and accepted. Paul says, nah, the gospel's not like that. The gospel's completely different. In the gospel, it's not a call for your righteousness, but it's a call of a gift of righteousness that God offers by faith. Notice that he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2 to show that this is consistently how God has always done it. For generations we have known this. The righteous shall live by faith, not earned, but through reliance and trust in God. He offers a right relationship, a righteousness, an acceptance, and life. And you know, it's not only just religions that are set up this way. I I, I think it's in our DNA. All of us at some level are trying to perform to earn righteousness, to prefer, to, to, to earn acceptance, to, to get in. Righteousness and, and, and justification, we'll see when we look at chapter 3, 4, and 5. They're, they're really the same concept. To, to build our own righteousness is to try and justify. And I think we see this beautifully pictured in the movie The Chariots of Fire. In the scene before his race, Olympic athlete Harold Abraham says, In one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyebrows and look down the corridor. Four feet wide and ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. For him, it was his performance in the Olympics. Ten seconds to justify my existence, justify my worth, earn my righteousness, earn my status, be someone, be me. Maybe that might seem extreme and he's a professional athlete, but really we're all doing it in different ways. We want our life to be worth something that that it counts. And and so we co-opt all the different things in our lives, all the stuff to try and build this sense of worth. This sense of acceptability. Everything becomes an opportunity for me to try and do and build my righteousness, my work, my marriage, my family, how my kids perform, my social media persona, even my Christian life and my service. It's in our DNA where we try and build our performance righteousness. And the gospel doesn't play along with that game. It dismisses that, it subverts that, it deals with the underlying condition and it breaks that cycle and it says here is the gift of righteousness, of acceptance, of value, of worth in the eyes of the righteous God. The gospel acknowledges the painful truth that we are guilty sinners. We can't achieve righteousness by ourselves. We don't even make our own standards, let alone meet gods but yet on the other hand the gospel offers us this gift of righteousness this validating record in god's sight because of the work of jesus christ not because of us to be received through faith alone this is the end or this 
brings to an end our struggle, our search for validation, our fragile self-worth, trying to earn acceptability. It truly is, as the prophet Habakkuk said, life based on the righteousness of God. Is it any wonder that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this message. I can't wait to come to Rome. This is the power of God. It offers righteousness as a gift through faith. Let me draw to a close. We started out by asking the question, do we have confidence in the gospel? Does the gospel have a place in the new Northern Ireland, in a modern-day Belfast? The gospel is news. It's good news. It's not a code of ethics that we have to live by. It's not even wisdom quotes to meditate on and to be inspired by. It's not even systematic theology to consider and debate. It is news. Now, those things may come from it, but it is fundamentally good news that needs to be announced of what God has done in Jesus Christ. He has made him both Lord and Christ and what he now offers through faith in his Son. We need to be continually proclaiming this news from the front, in small groups, with each other, to ourselves. The good news of Jesus Christ. And our confidence in the power of God at work in the gospel will drive our commitment to it. Both here in our church family and then out to the city around. You know, it would have been easy for the Romans to sit back and to look out at the city and think, these guys are, <laughs> these guys are way beyond the gospel. There's no place here in Rome. And perhaps that's how many of us can feel today as we look out and see a new Northern Ireland. A strong and vibrant LGBTQ community. Those who have been wounded by the sins and abuses of religious institutions. Those steeped in hatred and politics. Or maybe just those who are middle-aged and middle-class and don't really care. Do we think that the gospel has somehow lost effectiveness? That it can't touch every part of our society? The gospel is the power of God, offering the gift of righteousness, and it takes no more strength or power of God to save any one sinner than another. This is the gospel that Paul is asking us to get in on. Let's just pray as we close. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was born a descendant of David into the old, weak age. And he was raised again in power, in the power of a new life, a new age. And now he offers us that new life with him. We pray that as we as a church go through this letter over the next weeks, we will see the centrality of the gospel, and how it applies to every aspect of our lives. May we be changed by your word as we consider your gift and your grace, your righteousness in the gospel. 
So we commit ourselves and our city to the work of your word, through the work of your spirit, for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.